So welcome everyone to Change Voices, a weekly podcast where we explore the challenges, successes and lessons of leadership through the experiences of diverse women leaders across Africa and beyond. I am your host, Paula Frey, CEO of Frey Intermedia. So over the years, Frey Intermedia has initiated several programs to change narratives about our home here on the African continent. Many of these changes are being led by women who are experts in their fields, whether it is in business, civil society or even government. And over the next few weeks, I'll be introducing you to some of these women who are making waves and challenging the narrative, often doing so without seeking or even getting recognition for their work. Many of the lessons that they've learned on their journeys have not yet been captured. We want the Change Voices podcast to contribute to changing and challenging the perceptions about who leads and who speaks about leadership. But it's not just about talk. We want our conversations to have real-world effects, and we want to share our lessons with you. We want our discussions to be learning experiences, and we will be using Frey Intermedia's social media platforms to share the lessons derived from each conversation, as well as share practical tips that can be applied in a number of situations. Our inaugural guest is Sisonke Msimang, who is an acclaimed columnist and author of the autobiographical Always Another Country, as well as the recently published The Resurrection of Winnie Mandela. In Always Another Country, Sisonke deals with the struggles of a life in exile, and she transports her reader to her childhood in Zambia and Kenya, to her studies in Canada and America, and her return to contemporary South Africa with all its complexities and contradictions. She is a bold voice focused on race, gender and democracy. She has written for a range of international publications, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, The Guardian, Newsweek and Al Jazeera, as well as local South African publications such as The Mail and Guardian and The Daily Maverick. Sisonke commutes between South Africa and Australia, where she is the program director at the Centre for Story. For this reason, she's the ideal person to talk to us today about amplifying our voices and the power and importance of speaking out and speaking up. So welcome, Sisonke. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are now? So I am a South African. I was born in the 1970s in Swaziland, uh, but my family were at the time living in exile in Lusaka, Zambia. And so I grew up outside South Africa, always with a very clear and strong sense of myself as a South African, as a South African child, as a child of the liberation movement, and specifically a child of the African National Congress. And in 1990, when I was 17 years old, I visited South Africa for the first time in the wake of Nelson Mandela being released from prison. Up until that point, I had lived in Zambia, in Kenya, in Canada, and I, yeah, I had lived in all those places. And then I went to college in the U.S., uh, did my degree there, and that was when South Africa went to the historical vote. I cast my vote in the first elections. I was just old enough to vote, which was fantastic. <laughs> um, and then 97, after I had finished university, I moved home to, to live. My family, by that point, already living in South Africa. Um, this feels like a very long answer. Oh my goodness, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's like interesting because this is also, this is very personal, but it's also very political. And when I was reading your book, Always Another Country, I mean, one of the things that really kind of stand out is how much of that journey and all of these places that you're talking about now actually helped shape who you are now, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that the politics of each of the, well, I mean, like most South Africans of any age, really, uh, mm. but certainly all of us who were born before 1994, uh, politics was fundamental in shaping where we lived, how we lived. Yeah you know, who we knew, our social networks, you know, all of that stuff was so fundamentally shaped by, by the politics mm -hmm. of the time. I then studied politics and came home and wanted to contribute to building the new South Africa. Nelson Mandela was the president at the time. And so I immediately went into development work. So I worked for a range of international development agencies and really enjoyed it and felt I was learning a lot and in my own small way, contributing to South Africa and then Southern Africa but increasingly began to have itchy feet and want to do things broader than development. And so that's mm. really how I come to find myself here today as someone who writes on as close to a full-time basis as I think anyone can afford to these days. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's true. And this podcast is talking about voice and how you find your own voice and how you use your voice for social justice or even just to stand up and speak the things that you mm. believe in. And I really wanted to, to know, were you always outspoken or did you have to overcome your own fears of speaking out? And for many of us, for not being liked, of being judged by others when you do speak out, what were you like as a young person? I was a, a typical eldest child and eldest girl. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, I was quite assertive and I knew my own mind. But on the other hand, I felt a very strong obligation to my parents, the duty of the eldest to be pleasing and to make sure that I did what was expected of me. So I, I think I was a very responsible child. I think we learn very early as girls to, yeah. if something you say or do will displease the adults, uh, then you learn to put that in check. Uh, at the same time, of course, there was an equally strong impulse, which was that I was a child in a revolutionary community that really encouraged mm -hmm. us to speak out, <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. to, to be educated, to express ourselves, to be creative. So I had these two pulls, not necessarily in opposite directions, but sometimes in different directions. Mm -hmm. uh, so both, both were part of me. I'm not a shy person, uh, so I'm not a natural introvert. I really feed off the energy of other people. I, I learn a lot from dialogue and conversation. I love to talk, but I also like to listen. So speaking mm -hmm. out is, is something that in some ways comes naturally to me. And I say that because I am aware that it's not something that comes naturally to a lot of people. I've had to learn to not assume that when something comes easily to me, that it comes easily to others. Mm -hmm. Because I think in the world of activism, many of us take for granted a certain kind of fluency and articulation. And then what we do is we don't make explicit how we do things because mm. we think, oh, that's just natural, you know. So I've had to think very hard about, even though it comes naturally for me to speak out, I have done a lot of thinking about when are the moments when I'm afraid and why am I afraid? And then what do I do to conquer those fears or to move ahead, you know, in spite of those fears. Um, Can we talk about that? Can we talk about, explore those moments of fear and how you push through the fear in order to say what needs to be said? Yeah. So I think the first thing for me as a person, and this goes for personal conversations, you know, with your partner or with family members who, you know, you may be worried about or even big public speaking events and rallies and so on. So I think it goes for any scenario. But for me, the first thing is always to be clear on what I myself believe. Mm. And sometimes we're not confident because we aren't quite sure yet what we think. And so the courage to say something is because of a doubt about whether or not we are correct. So the first step for me is always to be clear on what I think, clear that what I think is in fact the right thing. 
And that's a process that I think often we underestimate because when you are challenged about what you think, the biggest place where you lose confidence is in how you respond. So it's not just that we're afraid to stand up and speak. It's that we are afraid to be challenged and to know what to say next. So preparation for me is always key. Whenever I prepare for a big event or whenever I prepare for a big conversation, I really take those moments very seriously by preparing for them. That means doing the intellectual work and the emotional work to be prepared for what I'm about to face. Then the second step is more related to what we often think about as the nerves. You know, the jitters, like literally standing in front of people, you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And the only thing I can say about that one is there's no way to get around it but to do it. It's the same advice I give to people when it comes to writing. You can't write unless you write. And it's true for speaking. You cannot speak unless you speak. Mm-hmm. So that back, back to the first piece of advice, which is to be clear on what you think. So that if you're clear on what you think, it makes it easier to speak. It doesn't solve it. But it does mean that you will know that you will make mistakes, but they will be mistakes of articulation. They might be mistakes of nerves, but they won't necessarily be mistakes of intellect. And for me, mm. not, not necessarily for everyone, but yeah. for me, that, mat- that matters a lot because at least I can say, I didn't say it perfectly, but I said what was on my mind and I said what I believed. So that's the second step is to just do it. <laughs> mm. And then I think the, the third step is to always surround yourself to make the statements, to take the stand in as safe an environment as possible. So we know as activists that not every environment will be safe and that you can't control the environment. But to the extent that you can, it means going with someone, right? So be accompanied, that we are never activists on our own. Have someone there, even if it's not possible physically, have someone available on text message to say, hey, I did it, you know? So having a support base, I think, is critical. Those three Mm. things for me are are what we don't talk about, but which are crucial for Mm. making us feel that we can speak out. So that gets us to the process of actually speaking up. But then, of course, there's also the reception. And one mm. of the things really that a lot of activists are having to do with these days is what, what we often call the weaponization of, of social media, right? Where social media is wielded as a weapon against particularly feminists. Um, mm. I mean, I, I think most people who speak out can come under attack, but it's, it's particularly harsh for women. Um, mm. And so I'm interested to know how... How you build resilience around issues like that and, and how you deal with what happens um, once you've spoken out? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's a very difficult one at first. And then it feels like a case of diminishing returns with mm-hmm. online commentary in the sense that when you first get attacked online, it really hurts. And then the more you get attacked, and I've noticed this with a number of women that I admire the more you are able to just actually just incorporate it into the way that you fight back, Uh, learn how to be playful with it, to learn how to ignore it, to learn how to use the block button, to learn all kinds of very helpful methods for speaking back to power, which you can use in real life. (laughs) Yeah. So for me, it's definitely been a process. Um, When I first began to write in the public eye, I did this for the Daily Maverick. And you might recall that the Daily Maverick's comment section was terrible. Um, It was a real place of just terrible, terrible comments and terrible people would sort of live there. 
And because I was quite different from the other people who were writing at the Daily Maverick, <laughs> in, that, in that I was one of the earliest columnists who was a black woman, consistently writing every single week at a time when the Daily Maverick hadn't really diversified. It was at that time known as a progressive voice for progressive views, but didn't really have consistent uh, columnists who are black or women. What happened was I think in some ways I became a bit of a lightning rod, totally unexpected for me, because I do try very hard to be nuanced and to be thoughtful. And of course, one of the lessons that you learn very quickly is it has really nothing to do with you, how people respond mm -hmm. to you your comments is, is not personal. It has nothing to do with what you say or what you don't say. And once you understand that, then you can take it much less personally and you can use those comments and that trolling as a lesson to others on how to be tough rather than trying to use it as a lesson to sharpen your commentary or, you know, because they don't, yeah. that's not what, they don't care what you're saying. <laughs> they care that you are speaking. That's what they're trying to shut down, you. Is there a point at which you actually withdraw from, from the criticism and, and, and block it so as just to protect yourself? I think there's two reasons to withdraw from the commentary. So the answer is yes. Uh, one reason is, is certainly, as I said, at first, you do need to protect yourself because you do take it seriously because we're all human beings. Even though I think online trolling should not be taken seriously because, as I said, it's about an attack on your identity rather than an attack on your ideas. And therefore, yeah. we cannot take that seriously. So once you're beyond that point, when you block it or when you withdraw, it isn't necessarily for your own sake. I think the second reason to stop it, once you realize you are not hurt by it any longer, which is certainly a point that I reached, the second reason to stop it is because it becomes a spectacle. And it's really important for other young women to not be subjected to me being treated like that. Not because I'm hurt, but because I think that it's a really terrible thing for other people to have to watch uh, because they don't know that it doesn't hurt me. And what mm. they see is that, that someone is doing that to another black woman. And, and so I think allowing it to happen in any form is not good for the general environment. It feeds this polarized discourse and it sort of gives permission to a way of being treated that we don't want to give permission to. Mm. I want to kind of take you to the step of finding your voice and your writing. I just know that there've been many columns that I've read of yours or, or even just reading your book. One of the things that I really appreciate about your work is your ability to combine this intellectual rigor with the real empathy for people in your columns, in your writing, in your storytelling, and to make that link between the personal and the political. And I'm just wondering whether you specifically set out to be that kind of a writer, whether you set out to tell specific kinds of stories, or did your style emerge through your writing? Um, so thank you for that compliment. It means a lot to me. Uh, one, because I have such respect for you and your work, but also because it is something that I work hard on. So it's nice when people compliment you on something that you're trying to do. <laughs> um, yeah, I do. I, when I first started to write, things have certainly changed for me from what I thought I would do to what I'm doing now. And one of the ways that things have changed is that I thought, oh, I do all this development work and human rights work. I'm interested in governance and I have developed a kind of professional competency around it. And I have access to all these complex stories about development challenges that our country and our region is facing. And I don't see those in the mainstream media. So let me write about them. That was really what I thought I would do. Mm. And so I, I did set out to tell a particular kinds of stories that I thought weren't being 
talked about with enough depth in the mainstream media. And I very quickly realized that the media has a particular appetite for certain kind of stories. And I really began to write much more about politics than I ever intended to do. So, you know, real, you know, what mm-hmm. was happening with, with President Zuma, you know, the, the kind of weekly cycle really began to consume me because it's very seductive, but also it's interesting and important. So I began to speak out and had a voice, not on the place that I intended to do, but on a new terrain, which was on politics, which I didn't intend to do, but I still found that I had interesting and important things to say. But because my first love was really this longer form, much more rigorous, in-depth work, I always felt this pull to try to get back to the longer pieces. So I began to push back (laughs) a little bit on my own seduction. So that's when I decided to stop the Daily Maverick column. It really had to do with feeling as though I was not using my voice in the way that I intended to use it. And that was just, it's a complicated thought I'm trying to convey, but I guess what I'm trying to explain is um, sometimes even when we're being effective, we're not necessarily doing the thing that we want to do. Does that make sense? So, So when I found that I was writing every week about the same topic, which for a while seemed to be Jacob Zuma and the, the demise of the ANC. After a certain number of columns and after feeling as though I was reading similar ideas in other people's work, I um, began to think about how I might use my voice more strategically. And so finding my voice is a constant process for me rather than a once-off event. I am constantly trying to write better, think more deeply, and to explore areas and issues that other people may be doing, but to try and approach it from a different lens, often a feminist lens, definitely, but also from a lens in which I'm drawing people in rather than pushing people out. That means appealing to people who I know listen to me, young women, women in university, um, younger people in general. I think I have a following amongst them, but also writing in such a way that white people will have access to the difficult things that I say, that older people will have access to the things that they may not like that I have to say, et cetera, et cetera. So always trying to draw in while trying to hold the line around the things that I believe in, which is, yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't always get it right. And it, I think it almost reflects right that um, the real understanding that, that your writing needs to evolve, that your thought processes evolve, and that you can't be the same writer today that you were 10 years ago or five years ago, or quite frankly, even last year, that yeah. a lot changes in that time and, and, and your writing evolves with it um, in many, true. many ways. And, 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 the way, and the way that you can actually hone that is to write, is to, is to make the mistakes initially or to, to have the pieces that you wish you had done differently, but That's to have right. that constant process of just rethinking how you're talking, what you're talking about, what the issues are that you're looking at. I want to just, you know, you have a very interesting TED Talk that I really would suggest our listeners go and listen to. But one of the things that you say there is how the power of storytelling is really incredible for, for social justice, but it also has its limitations. And I want you just to talk a little bit around that. What are the limitations that you speak of? I think, you know, for me, one of the biggest limitations of storytelling is in some ways similar to the seduction that I'm always mm-hmm. talking about with, with writing. It's this idea that um, because you have consumed something, you have listened to a great story, you have spoken to somebody who's told you something really insightful, that somehow that translates into a feeling that you've done something about it. Um, I'm very careful these days not to frame myself as someone who is mm-hmm. an activist anymore. 
because I think storytelling mm. is very powerful and very profound and can be used as a tool in social justice, but it is not the same thing as making change. Mm. But because it feels so good, because you are connecting, because there is something universal about certain stories, it, it can be tempting to believe that you have taken an action when in fact what you've done is share a story, click the like button, <laughs> you know, the, mm. the arm, armchair warriors attended an event, Attending an event is great, but it's not the same thing as actually being a foot soldier, participating in an organized and sustained way in building a social justice movement. That's activism. It's not to say there's anything wrong with those other things, but I think it's important to name them what they are um, and to be intellectually honest and ethically honest about what it is we're doing when we're doing different things. Storytelling mm -hmm. is not activism. Uh, it can build empathy and it can lead us down a path of activism, but in and of itself, it is not activism. Yeah, I mean, and then that's really a good point, isn't it? It's part of a whole package, but it's not the package. It's mm. an essential part if you're a storyteller, but it's not mm. the only thing that we need to be doing. So what advice then do you have for young activists, and in this case, particularly women, on how to find their voice? Because I, I think everyone has a voice. How yes. we use it is a difference, right? Um, so how do they find their voice? And then how do they use it effectively? So I'll go back to what we spoke about earlier. I think the first step to finding your voice is to read and to listen. I do a lot of training of storytellers, do a lot of training of people who are interested in, as they say, changing the world. I have question marks about that, uh, about the pomposity that some of us who, who <laughs> want to change things. <laughs> um, we aspire. Uh, we aspire. Um, and, and what I'm uh, increasingly struck by is how so few of us, not just young people these days, but it's particular amongst young people, how few people read. When you ask people, what's your favorite book? When was the last time you picked something up and read you know, a full-length book? It, they have to think a long time. So I think the first step about finding your voice is to read the work of others because people who have produced books, people who have stories to tell have often found their voice. That's why they're able to articulate themselves. And listening is such an underrated but important part of finding your voice. You have to listen to other people. Part of why that's important is because it's the step one in the framework that I talked about before, which is the step one is preparation. To be clear on your ideas and to be clear on what you believe in because it's our beliefs and our principles that guide what it is that we choose to say about how we want the world to be. So preparation, preparation, preparation. And then the second thing I would say is once you've done that, always be strategic and always be tactical. And that means really having a friendship network, having an activist-based network, that we don't act alone, that we are always in the business of building constituencies and forming alliances and working with people because the, the activism and the world I want to live in is one where power is shared rather than where power is used over people. So for me, those are the key ingredients. Listen, prepare, and then find your tribe and make sure that that tribe has got your back. And then, as you said earlier, go out and do. The doing is essential. We can only theorize about it so much. And then just by getting out there and testing it and being scared and standing in front of people um, and running around and getting the things that need to be gotten. You know, one of the things about um, having a voice is that all of us are different in terms of our personality. And so if you're not the extroverted type who feels that their place in the revolution, in the resistance and whatever you want to call it is at the front, that doesn't mean you don't have a voice. 
It means that your voice manifests itself in different ways, expresses itself in different ways. Even figuring that out, I think, is a crucial part of knowing what your voice is, right? Knowing Mm -hmm. that you're particularly good at pressing the button on this thing and that if that didn't happen, things would not move forward. Knowing that, I think, is crucial to figuring out where your comfort levels are. So it's not always about being in the front. And, and, and I want to actually end on that note because I think what really speaks to me is that idea of finding where you are, finding what you want to speak about. I think we need to push our comfort levels, but mm. finding out what we add most value to right, mm. as much as possible. I have to say, Sasanka, um, you've inspired me in many ways, again, just to rethink <laughs> about what I am speaking out about. And, I'm, and, and as someone who self-describes as a writer, as an activist, I think um, what you've told us today is just a reminder of all the things that we can put in place in order to be more effective in what we do. So thank you very, very much for that. Thank you. Shall we, shall we read a little bit from your, from your book? Sure. I, um, I was going to read from the end, mm-hmm. but I think there's still lots of people who haven't read my book, so I don't want to share the end. And given what we've just said about writing and the, the way our conversations went, I thought I would read from the section called Why I Write. Mm-hmm. I'm writing okay. because I don't know what to do with how I feel about myself and South Africa and the political movement I once loved. I write because the longer I live in South Africa, the more evident it is that my country is a father who can never return my love. I love this place so deeply, yet I am not of it. So there is always a level of superficiality in what I can know in my bones about this place. I am the observer, the outsider who can see precisely because she stands apart. Understanding this helps me write my way into being stronger and clearer and kinder to myself for my distance. I write my way into forgiving myself for not being able to become the ultimate insider. I write from where I am rather than where I want to be. So my columns become essays. I write from a place of questioning and heartbreak. Everyone says to watch the word count, but when you don't care anymore about sounding authoritative, rules like that matter less. I write the way I am. I write as a woman who has traveled and is confident and sometimes vulnerable and disappointed and often unapologetic and angry because really, this is the stuff of life. I write into an embrace of the criticism I get every week online. I lean into the troll hate and I begin to write against being called a bitch and a cunt and I refuse to let any of it cut me down. I write because of who I am and I write in spite of everything that makes me afraid. Should I stop there? Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Sorry for the swearing. (laughs) I'm fine with the swearing. I'm I'm actually on the verge of tears. I just, I think, I mean, I, I, I know the power of words and I know the power of storytelling and of writing and of speaking truth to power. And I think, um, if we have more women doing that, if we have more more social justice activists, more feminists, um, we can shift from storytelling to action, right? Absolutely. You've just said it. Sasanke, that was like incredible. Thank you very, very much. Oh, um, my pleasure, Paula. Oh, it's very, very great to speak to you. I mean, this has Thanks, been a really guys. great session. Take Thanks. care. Ciao. Bye. Bye-bye. So let's take this opportunity to recap some of the key messages from our discussion. 
We all have a voice and we can decide how to use it. But if we are stepping out, then Sisonke has three key pieces of advice. The first that she mentions is that preparation is key. Take the time to do the intellectual and the emotional work and be clear about what you want to say. The next is that we need to go ahead and do it. Say what you need to say. You cannot speak unless you actually go out there and speak. And then finally, she talks about building a supportive network to create a safer environment by surrounding yourself with your tribe. The more you speak out, the easier it becomes. But finding your tribe or building your network isn't always as easy as it seems. So join us next week when we speak to Bertha Dlamini, who is the president of the African Women in Energy and Power Network, when we will talk about the ins and outs of building networks, but more importantly, about building networks that work. You can find more information about the work we do and the Change Voices podcast on our website, freyintermedia.com, or on our social media platforms at Frey Intermedia on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, where our Frey Intermedia teams involved in the production of this podcast will be posting regular updates and sharing the lessons as we go along. If you have any specific women in mind that you'd like to hear from, or if you want to support our endeavor, then you can contact me directly at pfrey at freyintermedia.com or direct message me on social media. Remember to subscribe so that you don't miss out on our next conversation and rate us on whichever platform you're happening to be listening in. Thank you for your time and thank you for joining us for today's discussion. Let's chat again next week.